Okay, so for the Lent season, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, if you have a, a prayer journal, you can kind of follow along. Uh, our hope is that those have been, been just a helpful instrument and tool to, to get you into reading Scripture, praying, reflecting. Again, we think that's a, a practice that's just formative for our lives, and it's important. And if you've been following along in the journal, um, you should be at about Matthew 20 right now uh, with the readings. And I want, to, uh, I want to read this verse that's in Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28, and uh, then we'll just kind of, we'll go from there. So if you have, have your Bibles, you can follow along. Uh, if you want, it should be on the screen behind me. But this is uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. And the subtitle is, A Mother's Request. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked for a favor of him. What is it you want? Jesus asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and, on the, and the other at your left in your kingdom. You do not know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they replied. And Jesus said to them, you will drink from my cup but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the, ter- the ten disciples heard about this, they were indignant with the two. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be your slave. And just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's powerful words from Jesus. As he's talking about the kingdom, he's talking about this new community that he has come to establish, and he's redefining this idea of greatness. And this Mother comes to him with a request, and she has greatness in her mind as well, and it starts this discussion. <clears throat> a couple weeks ago, we heard of a scandal in the news, and if you were following, uh, you would have heard of, uh, it was a, a, a college admissions scandal about uh, some of the kind of wealthy movers and shakers in our society who were bribing prestigious universities so that their children could go to school there. And as I had kind of like caught wind of it, I was thinking, oh, here we go, you know, we're going to find out like, maybe it's like these Wolf of Wall Street type people, uh, maybe it's like organized crime, mafia type people, you know, like who in the world is, would do such a thing? And 50 people were charged for, for bribery, for the scandal. And as I was like, okay, I want to find out who are these people. I never would have expected that Lori Laughlin <laughs> from Full House, a.k.a. Aunt Becky, was on the list. And I was reading that. I was like, not Aunt Becky. No, like this, it can't be her. I mean, she's recently been dubbed the queen of the Hallmark Channel for all of like her wholesome like holiday films, right? And you hear this story, and you're like, what in the world, Aunt Becky? Now, uh, Uncle Jesse looks like someone that would be maybe bribing, right? <laughs> you see that face, you're like, you can't trust that. But, uh, but Aunt Becky, come on, say it ain't so. Aunt Becky's bribing. And as you kind of, you, you read through that, and, and granted, she's, you know, 
you're innocent until you've proven guilty, but it's not looking good for her. It's going to be interesting to see kind of, kind of what happens. And I heard just this weekend they interviewed Bob Saget. I think everyone kind of remembers him from America's Home Videos. He's one of uh, Lori Laughlin's friends. And what do you think about this scandal? And he said, you know what? You love who you love. That was his response. Like, this is a mother's love for her children. That will do anything so that her children can have the best education. And, like, we hear it and we're like, goodness, this is like, you know, this isn't fair. This is, this is like the wealthy getting their way, the abundantly wealthy, the rich and famous throwing their weight around and getting advantages that my children may not get. And so, but then we, then we think about it and wonder, like, well, what would you do? What would you do for your children? What would you do if you had the, the means that Lori Laughlin did? Does that change anything? I once heard that sometimes, like, like the rich and famous, like, the only thing difference between them is that it just magnifies all of, like, our vices because all of a sudden they have opportunity uh, to use it. But it's interesting that someone like Lori Laughlin, who we just have, you know, kind of a, a, an idea of what she's like and who she's like, would do something like this, actually bribing prestigious universities, getting in trouble, possibly serving prison time. I thought about Lori Laughlin as we came to this passage in Matthew chapter 20 because this is a request from a mother. And the request, uh, you can kind of look at it in two different ways. But here's kind of what we know about this this woman. She's uh, married to to Zebedee. These are sons of Zebedee are James and John, two of the disciples. And if you kind of connect the dots with some of the other gospels, some of the scholars think that that this woman is probably... uh, Jesus's aunt. So she's sisters with Mary. Um, I think that they think her name is Salome. And, uh, and so she's kind of like an Aunt Becky type figure in Jesus's life. Like Jesus is, uh, I, I can only imagine like what this, this is when she comes with this request. And, and, uh, and you might look at this request and say, this is a mother who cares for her children. She wants the best for her children. She has great dreams for James and John, and it, and it seems like, you know, she, she falls at Jesus' feet. There's some humility here. Like, she is humble. She has good intentions. She must have good intentions. And then she, she understands, like, who Jesus is. Like, she's asking this because she believes that Jesus is the Messiah. So, like, she has to get some points for that, right? Because she acknowledges that, that this is going somewhere. And, and when this does, because of your, then, then, and you could look at that and say, maybe she's got some noble, you know, motives. But whatever she does kind of sets off this chain reaction and brings up this conversation that make me think maybe something else is at play right here. First thing is this story sheds, it sheds some light on, I think, the mindset of the disciples at this point in Jesus's life. This story sheds some light on the mindset of the disciples. And it's interesting because the 10 disciples who aren't James and John, hear about this, and they're upset about it. They're mad. They're angry, in fact. And it's not like they're angry because they're like, hey, th- you know, we, this isn't what we're about. Like, you know, we're about something else. No, they're mad because they want in on it too, and they feel like this woman has kind of overstepped them to put her sons in a place of position, a position of power and authority. So they're upset, and we find that even in the inner circle of Jesus, these disciples who've been Following Jesus this whole time in his ministry, there is, uh, there's jealousy, 
there's jockeying for position. There's, there's um, ambition to be successful and to stand out. And these are the, the close followers of Jesus. These are the 12 that you would think, you know, if anyone would kind of understand, like, humility, it would be them. And yet they all are upset about this, and they're missing something. And I think what happens is that even in the midst of where what Jesus is doing and where Jesus is going as he's getting ready to, to go back to Jerusalem for the final week of his life, and he's warning them that the cross is coming, and they still imagine this, this political figure who's going to restore their kingdom, and, and they're just missing what Jesus is really up to. And they fall prey to, I think, one of the myths, that greatness is found in title and position. Even 2,000 years ago, in this little corner of the powerful Roman Empire, we have these people who are kind of buying into this myth that greatness is found in title and position. And this Aunt Becky figure comes to Jesus and says, would you place my two sons on your right and your left when your kingdom is established? She wants the greatness because of title and uh, position. Jesus responds, says, well, this isn't exactly what I'm doing here. This isn't what this is about. This story, the way that he responds, I think, sheds light on the goodness of Jesus. So it sheds light on the minds of the disciples. It sheds light on the goodness of Jesus. Because even when she makes this request and it kind of upsets the other disciples, Jesus doesn't rebuke her. His response isn't to say, well, you're wrong. His response is, well, hold on. Hold on. For you to to desire this title and position, count the cost to it. Do you know what I'm actually here to do? Do you understand why I... Am here. And he starts to talk about this idea of, of true greatness is found not in title and position, but this new community that he is developing, this new kingdom that we are a part of. Greatness is found in how you pour yourself out to add value to others. It's found in serving. It's not found in being entitled or expecting the world to do things for you. It's found in giving your life away to others. The goodness of Jesus, he doesn't rebuke her, but he says, here's a warning. There's a warning here that misguided ambition can be a dangerous thing. But what I'm about, what my kingdom is about, isn't about ambition as the world defines it. It's about serving and loving. This would have been, I think, good news for people who were expecting a king, and they would understand that kings rule over people with power and authority. And here Jesus says, this isn't my way. What is Jesus like? What kind of kingdom is he going to be a part of? The kind of kingdom that selflessly and sacrificially serves other people. Jesus says, I'm the kind of king that hasn't come to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. We're just saying through that song that that he is our ransom. Jesus' goodness is found in this idea that that he gave his life up as a ransom. Ransom is this term of of really slavery. And if you were in the the Greek world, to to pay a ransom was mean you would purchase a slave that was owned by someone else with a price, with a ransom, and that slave would be set free. 
And this is the kind of language Jesus uses. In his goodness to us, he says, he's given his life up as a ransom for many. The goodness of Jesus is that he lays down his life for others. In fact, you could almost sum up the entire mission of Jesus in this statement. I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for others. Jesus comes as a self-sacrificing king, ransoming us, us enslaved to sin, enslaved to the things that we want, enslaved to the brokenness, enslaved to our own misguided ambitions. Jesus comes and he lays his life down and he gives his life on the cross and it sets us free. The goodness of Jesus is shown in this story. Also, this story shed light, sheds light on the mindset of the disciples. They're jockeying for position. They're jealous. It sheds light on the goodness of Jesus. And then finally, it sheds light on the cost of following Jesus. What it means to be a disciple, a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Jesus lays this out here, and there's no mistaking what the cost would be. Jesus says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, if you want to be, uh, have a place of significance, it's not about a title, it's not about a position, it's going to be how you love and serve other people. This is where true greatness is found. This is what I have come to do. If you are my disciples, you should do this as well. To be a follower of Jesus means that we add value to people around us, that we serve others, that we pour ourselves out so that others may have life. I've had an uh, opportunity to do a number of weddings this year. And uh, it, it's been fun to do like premarital counseling with couples that get married. Um, and we, we talk about how like this relationship in a marriage, uh, it, it puts on display, I think, the gospel. Self-sacrificing love. And usually when people are going into a marriage, uh, there's all sorts of optimism. We're so in love. We're going to live happily ever after. Um, but, but not often are they faced with some of the challenges that come in marriage. Marriage is really difficult. Life is difficult. And then you get married and, and you add all that difficulty. And I remember when I was growing up, my dad's a pastor, and he would always talk about the math of marriage is this. Uh, you have one sinner who marries one sinner, and you have two sinners. That's the math of marriage. And then you add a bunch of little sinlings into the picture. <laughs> and, and so what happens is, like, as we're getting ready for married, our hope to be married, our hope is that we, like, find the right person, right, to, like, limit the damage of what, how challenging marriage is going to be. If I can just find the right person, then I'll be happy. And, and one of the things that I think I, I've learned and, and I have said to, to couples that we've, Marcin, have counseled is there's no such thing as the right person. And everyone gets really mad at that. It's not very romantic. And I say there's no such thing as the right person because all of us are, are flawed. All of us have baggage. All of us have issues. And you really start to see them once you get married and live with that person. Um, but I would say that you, there's no such thing as the right person. The right person doesn't exist. And it's not about finding that person, but it's about becoming the right person. This is a perspective that we, we try to ingrain in our young couples. It's about becoming that right person for someone else. Because when you have two people who are committed to becoming the right person, you found the right person. Someone that's going to love in a marriage in a way that is self-sacrificing, 
is serving, is pouring out themselves for the other person. The gospel is on display in a marriage. It's about becoming this person who's sacrificing so that the other may have life, the other may have value. That's when you find the right person. And so we use language to kind of define this relationship of, of marriage. And we would say there's like contracts and there's covenants. And it's important when you're entering a marriage relationship, you're entering into a covenant, not a contract. A contract is something that you do to protect your own rights and you limit your responsibilities. But a covenant's the opposite of that. A covenant is a relationship that you enter into where you're, you're limiting your rights and you're increasing your responsibility. And so in this marriage relationship, you're pouring yourself out, you're, you're, you're serving the other person. You're laying yourself down, sacrificially loving. That's hard. That's why they call like, that relationship sacred. I think it puts on display the love that Jesus calls us to. And when we think about how Jesus is saying what's greatness, how greatness is defined in my community and in my kingdom is when people do this with each other. They lay down their life. Doesn't mean that they have no boundaries. I'm not talking about that. But they're self-sacrificing people. They serve and love others. They're pouring themselves out to each other. You want to be a follower of Jesus. You join Jesus in selflessly serving others. There was a book I read um, a while back called Across the Spectrum. And I'm a theology nerd, so I like to read about theology. I like to read about you know, different debates, theological debates. And uh, you know, I come from one camp, and I respect people from the other camp and love to engage in what these theological discussions are. And this book kind of took... Uh, like the, the theological spectrum, it's a spectrum kind of like maybe even politics. And like one side would, would kind of represent their argument and then in this book the other side would respond to it and then in this book the other side would respond to the response. And if you're not like a theology nerd, you're like, what in the world is this all about? Um, but I, I, I love this book across the spectrum, just kind of reading all these different accounts. But there's something that is said by one of the authors when he gets to the end of this book and all these complex theological arguments about what does it mean to follow Jesus and he says these words. It says, Christians debate a million complex theological issues. Many are important and legitimate. But from a kingdom perspective, all those issues are secondary to this one. Are we who profess Christ as Lord imitating his love, service, and sacrifice for others? Are we individually and collectively participating in the beautiful revolution Christ unleashed into the world. I love that. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? We haven't, we're not here to be served. We are here to serve others. We're joining God and pouring ourselves out, serving others, helping God in the story of salvation, pouring our lives out to other people. When I was thinking about like serving as Jesus explains in this passage and serving in my own life. I like to think I'm not like a hands-on type of Christian, right? Like serving is not something I, I super enjoy. When I look at my spiritual gifts, it's not like really high up on the, you know, ladder of spiritual gifts. Um, I would rather read about serving and talk about serving, <laughs> preach about serving than actually doing it. 
Um, but I was thinking about, like, in my life, like, when I do serve, like, what happens? When I do have this perspective, like, how do I add value to the people around me, to the circumstances around me? And I just kind of started to journal and jot down, here's what serving does. Uh, if you go to the next slide. Serving grounds us in humility, and it staves off entitlement. I was thinking about that. It's something that grounds us in this, this idea that you know, we probably shouldn't spend millions of dollars to bribe a college to get my child in because I feel entitled to do that. The idea of serving others reminds us that this world is so much bigger than us. And it stays off this idea of entitlement, something that I am constantly fighting off in this culture that I live in, that I am entitled. Serving grounds us in humility, says I was talking about, and I wrote down it, serving edifies the body of Christ and it enriches relationships. It edifies the church, it edifies my community, my neighborhood, my family, my coworkers, and I serve others. Serving mix, mixes a recipe for the miraculous work of God in our ordinary circumstances. And I think about the times where I feel like God has shown up in my life. It's when I'm stepping out obediently to, to serve others. We brought up that metaphor a couple weeks ago that the way that I think God works is he, he responds to our obedience. And, and I don't know exactly how this works, but it's almost like when you walk into a dark room that has a light monitor and the power is there and the power is ready to be turned on, but the power doesn't turn on until you walk into the room. This room behind me that you might be able to hear the kids talking right now. Um, every, every Sunday morning I go in there and the lights are off. And as soon as I walk into the room, I know that once I get to the middle of the room, the monitor catches me and the light turns on. And I feel like there's something that happens in this world when we respond to God's call to serve others, that it just activates the miraculous work of God in this world. Serving is the best and most compelling form of leadership. When I think about leaders that I truly want to follow, those that are the most compelling there's a, there's a humility, there's an authenticity, a vulnerability, where they have the ability to do things that no one else would want to do. They have the ability to serve others. Serving helps us when we are suffering. A few of the times in my life where I've gone through just really dark seasons, really difficult situations, some of the best healing that came was when I stepped out and just started to serve other people that were suffering like me or suffering worse than me. Suffering had... Serving has a way of just of healing suffering, to serve others. Serving adds value to people around us. Serving is the way of Jesus, and therefore, we experience the presence of Jesus in our lives when we serve others. You want to know what greatness, how greatness is defined in the kingdom? Is that you serve, you bring value, your salt in your light, you put Jesus on display. Not as something that you're doing to try to keep God happy, but to do something that you're being, it's an outpouring of what God has done for you. The words of this passage in Matthew are found in another story. And as we get close to Holy Week, we're reminded of the story of uh, the last week of Jesus. He's having dinner with his disciples and there's a story of foot washing and they're trying to understand like what's about to happen next and who's gonna be in charge. And this conversation, this debate, Bless you. This debate comes about of who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus pulls out a towel and he starts to wash his disciples' feet. And he starts to define greatness as uh, 
humbly serving each other. And he takes the idea of whatever title you have and he replaces it with a towel. And he says, this is what the kingdom is all about. We serve, we love, we pour ourselves out as salt and light in this world so that others may experience Jesus. At the end of that passage, he says this, now that you know this, you will be blessed to do it. When we serve others, when we serve our family, our spouses, our children, our coworkers, there's a blessing in there for us. It may not always be tangible, but there's something that happens that we're in line with the way of Jesus and the kingdom of God where everything is happening according to how God wants it. And there's great blessing in there for us. It crowns us in humility. We want a title, and Jesus offers us a towel. A towel. The way of Jesus is the way of serving self-sacrificial love. Uh, we, we talk about this idea of communion, and sometimes we, we take communion every week. Sometimes we kind of explain it. Sometimes we don't really explain it. And I think that we need to explain it more. Uh, communion is something that we do each week as a sacred act that reminds us of what God has done for us and what we are called to do as his church. And what's really interesting, I think, about communion is that it has a lot of different names. It's been called the elements. It's been called uh, the Eucharist. Eucharist is this word that we don't really use very often. Um, but it's, it's really kind of Eucharist, what it stands for uh, in the ancient languages, it's a, it's a thanksgiving. It's giving thanks for what God has done. And it's giving thanks for a good gift, a good gift of what God has done by pouring himself out that we may have life. But there's this idea that when we take communion, we take a piece of bread that represents Jesus' body that was broken. We take a cup of juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. This is this act that was the ransom, where he breaks himself open and he pours himself out. And all of the things that enslave us in the world that we're set free from when we come to this encounter with Jesus. We participate in the Eucharist, giving thanks for this good gift of salvation. But there's also this call to not just remember what Jesus has done for us, but to proclaim it and to live it, to be a living Eucharist. And the idea is that we also break ourselves open individually and collectively as a church, and we pour ourselves out to bring about life to other people. And we live in a world that is broken and hurting. There's a lot of heavy issues. And the church is called to move into those issues of brokenness and suffering with life-giving actions. We take the communion and we're reminded what God has done for us and then we do it for other people. This was foundational for the early church. And the church would, would sing about it before they would go to communion. And they had this old hymn that had became scripture. And today as we, we kind of close our time, I thought it would be great for us to recite this hymn. And so I wanted to do this kind of as a liturgy as we move to communion, as we move to our time of remembrance, thanksgiving, and proclamation. And this old hymn is found in Philippians chapter 2. And I thought it would be great if we could stand together and read it as a church, that true greatness is found when we do what Jesus has called us to do. Here are the words, if you would follow me. It says, In our, your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being the very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Greatness has served us. Greatness has served us so that we may serve others and become great. Tim's going to come back up and close us in a time of, uh, of worship. I'll pray for us, and when you're ready to move to the communion table to give thanks, to remember, and to proclaim. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this passage that sheds light on the disciples who are dealing with the same type of relational issues that we have. Misguided ambition, jealousy. Lord, we want to be great, we want to be significant, and yet we're reminded that the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. That in this new kingdom, in this new community, that greatness is found by how we love, how we love others, how we serve others. Lord, I ask that you would stave off entitlement. That we come humbly before you as a people shaped by you. Lord, this passage sheds light on your goodness to us, how you're patient with these disciples, this request from this mother, and your reminder that why you're here isn't to lord over people, isn't to overpower our will, but to love us with a sacrificing, redeeming love that invites us to a new way of living. Lord, this passage sheds light on discipleship, the cost of discipleship, where you invite us to a life of sacrifice, and yet as we give ourselves away, we find life that is truly life. We find true fulfillment and blessing. Lord, let us be a people who love well. Let us be a people who who sacrifice for others, who add value to people and circumstances, counting the cost, knowing that we rise in your kingdom. We come to your table today, Lord, who proclaim this message of your love and your sacrifice and say, let us be a people who put this on display for the world. Let others encounter you through our love and relationship with each other through everything that we do. That we would find true greatness as you define it and not as the world does. That we'd find significance, not just success. We give you this time. In your loving name, we pray. Amen.